Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the first podcast of the 2018 academic year. It starts with that extraordinary, unprecedented march of what proved to be 2,000 head teachers uh, last week who essentially were saying enough is enough in terms of the rhetoric of funding not being matched by the reality and the terrible decisions they're having to make. I start by talking to Jules White, the organiser of the Worth Less campaign. I, I was really proud to be there on behalf of Askell, but it very much was these head teachers, essentially around 10% of head teachers from England being there. I mean, quite, quite astonishing. Uh, and Jules kind of explains something about it. And then after that, I talked to a whole range of different people from different places, primary and secondary head teachers. Uh, Vic Goddard talks a- about it. And you really get a sense that this isn't about money. It is about opportunities being ripped up for young people and often the most vulnerable children not getting the kind of support which they, they really need to help them in school. So lots of interviews around that. And I hope you find it uh, useful as we look at how we can tell the story beyond the echo chamber of education so that parents in particular, politicians in particular, really understand what is happening in our schools and in our colleges because we know post-16 funding is proving an absolute disaster. Then there's a couple of other interviews. The, the biggest group uh, of uh, ASCO members you might be interested to hear are assistant head teachers. And I'm thinking this year we need to give more attention to that role of being assistant head and particularly those people who are just stepping into their first senior leadership role. And at the Kensington Aldrich Academy, I was really pleased to uh, be introduced at a conference by Jamie Clayton, a former English teacher, head of English, and now assistant head responsible for teaching and learning. And uh, he talks a little bit about his role and his hopes for the year. And finally, our new president, Richard Sheriff, and I had a fascinating conversation with uh, Lord Baker, Kenneth Baker, who was the architect of uh, that huge Educational Reform Act back at the end of the 1980s, which introduced so many things that we now take for granted. I asked him if he'd be happy to have an interview for the podcast. He was very happy to do so. And uh, this podcast finishes with that. I'm Jules White, head teacher at Tambridge House School, West Sussex. Well, Jules, say uh, first of all where we are and what we're doing, and then tell me how you're feeling. Um, well, we're obviously really concerned about all the cuts that we're facing, and I think that we've all been able to come together to make a real point. You know, we've done it in our relentlessly reasonable way. It's probably the, uh, the best yeah. It's probably the politest protest in history and so on, but the point is nevertheless really, really serious and we can't go on with the cuts any longer and I think we've made a real statement. And have you had much grief from either the media or from parents or from governors saying, well, why are you doing this? I think it's been totally the the opposite, really, to be honest. You know, I'm getting messages by the dozen from parents just saying thank you very much and I think all the heads are and I think if Worthless has done anything, it's given heads the confidence to speak out and I think that... We have, we have suffered a lot of things over the last 10, 15 years, not just funding cuts, but I think we are often done too, yeah. and we've got on with it, and I think perhaps by speaking out, and perhaps by showing it's okay, and perhaps by actually finding that parents, governors and others will really give us great support, we're going to keep doing it. We don't want to be radical, we just want to keep, see some things that are better, and funding's at the top of the list, as is teacher supplies, you know. What's, I mean, what strikes me is what message does it send out in the sixth biggest economy that you've got to have head teachers walking yeah. on Downing Street yeah, in order absolutely. to send out a message on behalf of parents? Absolutely, and the government have got to stop the mantra of more money than ever before. Absolutely. I keep on saying to everyone, you know, my house value back in 2000 was totally different than it is in 2018. It doesn't mean there's more money than ever before. Everyone knows there's real term cuts. I think they've got to start listening and actually got to start making a proper investment. Jules White, thank you. Thanks. Kelly Head, Springfield Infant School. 
uh, which is where? In Ipswich. Uh, and why are you here, Kelly? Um, because this can't go on much longer. We're at the point where we have had successive years of underfunding in Suffolk, but now the national picture is so bad too that we are we're making cuts to things that are really affecting children day to day. So SEM provision, extra people to help those children who just need that a little bit of extra help. Um, you know, even down to stationery, people to go on trips with the children, really lovely enrichment things which make children want to learn. We can't do those anymore. So we're here for our children. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for our children. And what about uh, parents who might say, well, you should be in school today. You know, if you really were committed to the children, then you'd be there. I would absolutely agree with them. I would love to be in school today. That, that's my passion. That's my job. That's what I do. But if somebody doesn't make a stand, if, if we don't work together as heads to get that message across to the government and to the wider public, I'm sure that they all um, feel that um, to some degree. And I would agree. I've watched protests myself and thought, why aren't those people at work? But actually, today is about our children and, and we have to do something for them. My name's Vic Gallard, I'm Principal of Passmore's Academy in Harlow. And people will know you, Vic, very yep. well. And you, uh, in fact, there was an extraordinary piece written by you, which was in the TS yesterday, which was expressing a sense of sadness more than anything, although we've got people clapping and so on. Something kind of demeaning for a country to think that its heads have to take to the streets in London for this. I'm just, it's honestly my overwhelming feeling is of sadness. Uh, the fact that I'm not in my school doing what I love today, from a personal perspective, that, you know... A moderate, highly trained, highly respected profession is here today. You know, doctors last year, us this year, you know, there's got to be somebody listening. We, if we're successful, this government's successful, and that's all we want. What would your parents say? I mean, have you had any flack from them about coming? Um, I haven't had any flack. I'm sure Facebook might have some comments on it, and, and that's fine. Um, you know, but I am employed to speak up for their children, and that's what I'm doing today. What kind of decisions have you had to make in school? We've already made redundancies. We made redundancies two years ago because we could see the direction of travel and knew we had to do something. You know, and I lost 10 amazing colleagues who'd given years of their life to the school. So we've done that. Class sizes are going up. Computer equipment isn't being replaced. You know, this, this generation of children are not getting the same deal as the ones did 10 years ago. And surely nobody can support that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Sarah Jones. I'm head teacher at Raymond Wade Primary School in Andover, Hampshire. And here we are with, what, 1,000 head teachers potentially? What, why are you here? I'm here because uh, our funding crisis at schools can't go on. It's um, adversely affecting so many children who have a right to a really good quality education and we are unable to provide that because of the hits our budgets have taken. Our, my school will, is now in a deficit budget and I've had to lose staff and I'm having to absorb children with high level needs because there's no places at uh, local special schools which we do with open arms but there's no money for the resources, the expertise, the extra staff and we are struggling. And so you will, in your role with governors, have had to make some really difficult decisions? We've had to go through a restructure and lose posts. So we are a skeleton staff now, and um, we are struggling with that. It's not working. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, Lucy Sinjan from Hearn Infant School in Kent. I'm Jackie Spinks from St Alfage Infant in Whitstable. Jenny Ashley-Jones from Reculver Primary School in Herne Bay. So you all know each other? We are yes. part of a collaboration, yes. Why are you here? 
because we're all here for the same thing. We are finding we have less in our budgets, having to do more. Um, and we're here for the children uh, and particularly looking at the future. We're very, very worried about what's going to happen in the future. We're all in schools where um, we are keeping standards up, standards are improving. Uh, but we're, going to, we're wondering about how we're going to do it in the future when we're going to have to make these huge cuts. And parents will listen to this and they'll listen to us talking about funding and cuts. But what kind of decisions are you having to make or you had to make already? Give us a flavour of... Well, we're having to, to cut down. Um, we, we're unable to fund our flow, our pat dog um, provision for our children. And mental health is a huge issue for all of us across our schools. Actually, we can't let that go. That's important to our children as they grow up and the well-being of the next generation. So the funding cuts are having a direct impact on the children today and the, the adults of the future. And when you're having to make cuts, the, the biggest areas where you make savings are through staff, aren't they? Yes, have you had to do, what, what decisions have you had to make around that? Uh, we faced a restructure situation last year, so we lost um, quite a good percentage of our teaching assistants. Um, even though obviously the needs of our children haven't changed and that's meant doing things in a very different way for us um, from, from September um, and it's very difficult, it's very difficult to kind of make you know, sure that what, you're... what sometimes I get thrown back to me as well, you know, in the past when I was at school there weren't teaching assistants uh, and a complete misunderstanding I know from experience that it's often the teaching assistant who can communicate with a young person in a way that the teacher doesn't necessarily. Is that your experience? Absolutely. And I think with the demands of the curriculum rising and the expectations on on people that work in schools, the pressures and the demands from outside, we haven't got as many external services. We're now picking up work from mental health workers, social services, things that they now don't have the capacity to take, we're now picking up in schools and actually that's becoming very challenging with fewer staff and limited budgets. And finally, what about those people who would say, well, like someone said to me on the radio this morning, well, if you feel so strongly, why are you giving up a day when you should be in school? Why are you not here at the weekend or in your holidays? This is part of our work. We're working for today for our children in our schools and this could be the best day's work that we've done if we can make change. And I think, I think the issue is, how could you not be here? If we're advocates for our children and if we stand up for our children, we absolutely need to be here. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, I'm Robin Bevan. I'm head teacher from South End High School for Boys. Uh, Robin, say where we are and why you're here. I'm at the gathering that's been variously called a protest, a march and a lobby uh, in Parliament Square. We're just walking down to 11 Downing Street and we're here because we want to send a very strong message to the Chancellor because the Treasury is simply not funding education at a level that allows for our pupils in our very different schools from all across the country to have the education that they deserve for their futures. And what's the consequence of that uh, for you and your school? Okay, in my own school we've seen an extraordinary pressure on the budget that's been the equivalent of a £1 million cut in revenue across the last five years. And the way we've responded is by increasing our pupil numbers from 950 to 1300 without a single increase in teaching staff. Now that has a profound effect on the teachers in the school. They are fabulous colleagues but they have to work so hard simply to maintain that position. And looking ahead this year, 
by January we've run out of money. We simply do not have the resources in our budget to sustain core provision going ahead. I've got governors at the school who are 100% behind me, but we're here today because we need a solution to that. And finally, how should parents looking at the images of today, how, how should they feel about a thousand head teachers uh, heading to the Treasury? They should realise how exceptionally unusual this is. Uh, there has never been an event like this before. A non-aligned group of teachers coming together with 30,000 years of teaching experience shared amongst them and saying, we simply cannot continue with funding as it currently is. We need the Department for Education to speak up on our behalf to support the schools in the battle to ensure that there is adequate funding going forward because we have to remember every pound spent on education is a pound saved from other areas of the future budget in this country. Robin Bedman, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Ray Safe. I'm a head teacher from the Spinney in Cherry Hinton, Cambridge. And it's always nice to be reminded, Ray, that you're here in the real world as well as on Twitter. Uh, this is yeah. true, it does it's happen great. occasionally, Jeff. <laughs> So, uh, tell us about your school. Uh, so, my school is uh, doing okay as far as funding is concerned, but that is because we've had to manage very, very tight budgets over the years. But as we uh, are continually asked to cut back and cut back, it becomes increasingly challenging because uh, it does have an impact on staffing and who we've had to let go um, over the last few years. And when you say let go, so you've had to go through redundancy process, have we, you? We have had to do that um, over the last few years in reducing the number of additional hours we've had in the school for additional support. And that means that the kind of children who are vulnerable and need extra support are the ones who are losing that? Absolutely. I think this is, um, obviously it's about basic budgets coming into schools, but for me it's also about children with SEND and the lack of funding to ensure that they really have uh, the, the support and the resources that they need so that they genuinely uh, can achieve the same potential as all the other children. And uh, that for me is uh, the biggest issue here. So just to remind everybody this is not about salaries, uh, this is absolutely about uh, the resources going into schools to support some of our most vulnerable children. Well said. Thank you, Ray. Thanks, Thank Jeff. Yeah, Jack Shmalakowski, head of Hampstead School in Canberra. And you've also got a role at Ascot. Tell us what that is. I have. Um, on council and chair of teaching and learning. Yeah, great, great thing to do. Tell us a bit about why you're here with uh, 999 or so other head teachers, Jack. Yeah, clearly uh, we've seen years and years of education cuts where increase in teacher salaries, well deserved, have come out of existing cash flat budgets with no funding. Uh, yesterday, here were the announcements around uh, teachers' pensions, employees' teachers' contributions. And year after year, we seem to be papering over the cuts. Uh, and I'm here because it's not about the distribution so much for me, it's about the quanta and schools being sufficiently funded in order to do right by their children. And you'll have had to make difficult decisions with governors. Yeah, very difficult to flavor. Advice. So, for example, uh, increasing class sizes. Uh, my sixth form this year is the biggest it's ever been, uh, but the classes are very big. Uh, and making sure that, you know, uh, some courses don't run, but they used to run, some of those minority subjects. Some Such students, as? Creative writing, philosophy, at A level no longer runs, and I have a big six form of 300, which is very economically viable on six form size. Uh, a GCSE, for example, uh, we couldn't afford to run music in year 10 this year, we didn't have the number of students, so there is a break even in terms of class size that we have to look at. Also, when teachers are, you know, 
It's never a perfect jigsaw fit when teachers are under contact. We use them instead of TAs and supporting children with special needs in the classroom and a whole range of creative strategies to make the, the, the budget balance. And we are a London school, so goodness knows what some other yeah. schools are going to put up with. And essentially this, of course it's about funding, but actually it's about opportunity, it's about social mobility as well. Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's about um, you know how we prepare children for the world, the future and the resources to do that. I read yesterday that at Bangalore University they've invented a, uh, an algorithm whereby brainwaves in 90 hertz to be read in order to control a drone and they've trained 14 people to control drones by their thoughts. I said it in my open evening last night actually to parents and I said how do we prepare children for that world? Well we can't do that without the required number of teachers and the required expertise and to do that we need adequate funding. Jack, thank you. You're welcome. I'm Nathan Golby, uh, the head teacher at St Andrews uh, CE Primary School in Nuthurst, Horsham. Where was that? Uh, Nuthurst. It's a little hamlet just south of uh, just south of Horsham. Oh, well, Horsham. Okay. Yeah. So you are West Sussex. West, West Sussex. Sussex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Small rural school. Which is where all this began, in a sense, isn't it? Absolutely. With Jules White. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Absolutely. And uh, every head teacher from the West Sussex locality group are here. I'm from the East Horsham. What's the uh, effect of funding cuts been in your school? Well, for us, um, we've had two consecutive years of redundancies, and we're a, we're a small school. So we've stripped back to the you know, sort of bare bones of the support staff. So the roles that you will have lost will have been who? We've, we've lost teaching assistants. Um, we now only have teaching assistants working with our high-end SEN children. No other teaching assistants in the school, not even in reception. We've uh, cut back 25 hours in the, our office. So they're, they're obviously stretched, putting in loads of extra hours. Uh, we lost a teacher. So had to make a teacher redundant last year. Bearing in mind we've got five classes. It's a very small school. What about the, let's, let's say there was a, a government minister listening to this saying, well, that's a sign that there was kind of flab in the system. Uh, you know, 20 years ago we didn't have that level of staffing. How would you respond to that? Well, I think there are always other factors that, you know, you can look at in school to, to, to help with a budget, but often they're unavoidable. We've had three or four SEN children come into the school with ad, you know, inadequate funding to support them, so that has to come out of our, our budget. We've been forced to have temporary teachers good temporary teachers in our school over the last two or three years as we've, as we've been raising standards so when other teachers have resigned or left for other other reasons so whilst we've been waiting to get maybe cheaper NQTs in so that's that's contributed but certainly you know the you know eight percent I think it's been quoted which you know is an average isn't it yeah. so uh, that that's that's certainly hit home we have a, a new cheap head teacher and a cheap deputy head um, and, a, and a lot of young staff and we're we still have a deficit budget so we may have to go through Redundancy process again, again next year. How long have you been uh, head there? Uh, three years. And how much does this dominate your life? It's ridiculous. You know, e endless meetings about how we can cut back. Obviously, the whole redundancy process is incredibly time-consuming, and we've had to go through. Yeah, and, and and if you're making people done in the office and among the teaching staff, that's two processes. So endless meetings, conversation with HR, governors. It's, yeah, it, it dominates governing body meetings. I'm supposed to be leading the teaching and learning in the school and yet I'm spending all my time doing accountancy. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just Yeah, madness. it's not the job it should be, is it? No, no it isn't. Thank you. No, Thanks for pleasure. Uh, Jamie Clayton, Assistant Principal, Teaching and Learning. And here we are at Kensington Aldrich Academy. So just tell us a bit, Jamie, about how you have got to be uh, Assistant Principal at 31. Um, well, I trained with Teach First um, in near Liverpool in St Helens. Um, and then I moved down to London after that programme um, and worked in an academy in Walthamstow. 
Um, I then moved to an independent school called City of London Boys, uh, right in the middle of London. Yeah, I've seen them on the debating circuit. Yeah, they're ferocious debaters. Yes, they are, they are. Um, and then after three years there, I decided to come back into the state sector, um, applied here as director of English, um, and then things have just gone really well here. Um, I've been involved in delivering some training, uh, been on the sort of periphery of SLT, um, helping with certain kind of outward facing things, and then the role came up as a seconded role for two terms, went for it, and that's how I got here. And the criticism sometimes of Teach Firsters is that they're people who kind of uh, came into teaching and kind of flirted with it. You clearly came into it and wanted to stick with it. So tell us a little bit about that Teach First experience. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting debate because it does come up all the time and yeah. you do encounter strong feelings about it. Um, I would say I did go into it flirting with it and very quickly realised I did want to do it. Um, I think the main thing I would say, the thing I often say to people when this comes up is that I don't particularly think Teach First needs to be a sort of fast forward programme. I've really enjoyed, um, maybe you disagree, but I think I've taken my time. I've, I did sort of six, seven years as an English teacher, sure. feel like I got relatively good in the classroom. Or, or at least strong enough to help other people develop. Um, and yeah, I, I, a lot of my friends that I met on the Teach First programme, probably half stayed in teaching, half left. Yeah, um, the ones who stayed in teaching are, are probably in similar situations to me. Um, so it's, in a weird way, it's worked out in, as the kind of community that was envisaged, I think, just not as formally or as quickly as perhaps the programme promised. Understood. So we're here in West London, and, and Kensington Aldridge Academy is literally in the shadow of Grenfell Tower. Uh, and so you've been displaced for a year in a different building. What's it like coming back to the, to the wonderful school that had been built and then you had to, to leave for a year? I think the displacement, the, the main thing it made me realise was how complex logistically schools are. And I would say that that's something I'm becoming more aware of in, in my new role. Um, things in the, dis in the site we were displaced to were a lot more complicated to arrange and coming back here, suddenly you can see quite complex things becoming much more simple to organise. So big events, um, outreach to parents, um, kind of big flagship teaching and learning things like lectures with the kids just weren't possible with that other site. So actually coming back, there's been a big kind of upsurge in people's creativity and their kind of ambition for things they want to do. So thinking with our year 11 cohort now, there's lots of great ideas floating around, and I would say that that's not possible without this building. So it's a real kind of thumbs up for good facilities, <laughs> yes, I think. Yeah. homecoming. And last question. So you've been head of English, and therefore in that role, chiefly you're responsible for a team of people delivering English. Though, of course, in the case of English and maths, you have a particular whole school kind of weight of responsibility on you, which I understand. Now you're stepping up to, to have this whole school responsibility for teaching and learning. What uh, are you looking forward to, and what are you feeling daunted by, if anything? Great question. Um, I'm really looking forward to sharing enthusiastically and forcefully some of the things that I really think are good ideas um, that I've picked up along the way. And that, that feels like a real privilege. So that's something I'm really looking forward to. And there are certain things that I think through being head of English, I realised didn't work or I've refined in my head about what kind of systems work and what kind of what kind of, it may be a simplistic way of putting it, but what kind of levels of conformity you can expect from a department without stifling creativity Absolutely. and things like that. Absolutely. Um, in terms of trepidation, probably just looking at other subject areas and just being conscious that pedagogy does look quite different 
in some areas and it can be very easy to go in and say let's do this, do this. in this model and and it not work out like that yeah, yeah. great jimmy thank you for your time good luck this year thank you cheers jeff uh, i'm kenneth baker the uh, chairman of the baker dealing trust which promotes utcs and also the chairman of the charity called edge which is the main uh, charity promoting technical education in our country and i think probably one of the very few politicians who've had a day named after them Yes, yes. <laughs> I never thought it would happen. It was a sort of decision I made late on a Friday afternoon when I said, I think there ought to be more training, you see. When I was trying to establish a national curriculum, trying to establish tests, trying to change the whole education system, schools independent of local authorities and heads in charge of their own budgets. Uh, it, it was almost an afterthought that proved to be very effective, and I very glad I did it. Now, when and when you... I in, did uh, introduce it, you will remember, it was, the idea was that you add a day at the end or the beginning of a holiday, and now it's moved right into the middle of term, and all the children get a day off, and the parents loathe it and hate it. <laughs> now, when you were appointed as uh, Secretary of State for Education, had you already been doing thinking about education? Was it a role you'd craved or was it one that took you by surprise? I, I was delighted to get it because I had done quite a lot of work uh, when I was industry minister on educational matters. I established back in 1981 when I was the technology minister uh, things called information technology centres which was for youngsters at 16 who got very poor qualifications and they were just taught in computing and we established several hundred of these across the country and I could see that you could communicate to people who had a very poor education, giving them something practical to do. So I uh, talked to Keith Joseph a lot about that, uh, and I was very keen to establish technical schools. Now, that Education Reform Act, which I think was 1988, if I remember, introduced things which have become just a recognised part of our landscape. But essentially they were very new. It was the idea, first of all, of injecting a certain sense of competition between schools through league tables, having an inspectorate there, but also having a national curriculum. And could we just talk about the concept of a national curriculum? Why did we need one? I think it's very important for children, to use one of Rab Butler's phrases, to go through the common mill of education. And all our youngsters should have a commonality of knowing certain things. Uh, and the, the pattern was that curriculums were very largely the decision of local authorities and of head teachers. And if you had a good head teacher, you had a good curriculum. If you had a, a moderate head teacher, you had a moderate curriculum. The poor teacher had a poor curriculum. It was simply that. And I, the idea was to establish a series of standards across the country. And also so that if a family moved from Plymouth up to Newcastle, they'd fit into the education system with their children, whereas Hitherto, it didn't fit at all well. Right. And that has certainly survived, although it was opposed by the Labour Party. They opposed virtually everything I did, I may say. Uh, and one of the big changes I made was to um, uh, make uh, heads responsible for their budgets. And there was great hostility to that. Uh, I remember attending meetings, I was told that they just wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't know how, how to employ people. They wouldn't know how to do all the things that are necessary. You would leave the local authorities to do it. That was a very big change. And the other big change was the creation of schools independent of local authorities, uh, the original city technology colleges, which became the academies. <clears throat> There's a story which you're the person who's going to be able to tell me if this is true or not. The anecdote is that you said to Margaret Thatcher, let's introduce a national curriculum, and she said, go and announce it. 
uh, Kenneth, uh, and you said, well, we haven't really done any work on it yet. And she said, never underestimate the power of an announcement. Is yes. that, it might that be true? It's pretty broadly true. <laughs> and I actually announced the National Grid when I was appearing for the Education Select Committee, asked if we were going to have one. <laughs> um, it's very interesting. When she appointed me, uh, I expected to be given a list of things to do. She didn't say that at all. She said to me, look, Kenneth, would you go away and think about what you want to do? Um, uh, the one thing you've got to try and resolve quickly is the teacher's strike, which has been going on for 18 months. That was the first thing I had to try and do, and I managed to get that settled but it, uh, within about uh, two months by taking away the rights of teachers to negotiate, basically. It was, what was the committee called? The Burnham Committee? Burnham, Burnham Committee. That was absolutely useless, paradoxically useless. Uh, and then eight weeks later, having talked it through with a whole lot of people, and my officials as well, and I had certain ideas of my own, obviously, I went back and told them what we would like to do, the national curriculum, introducing tests, the, the only test in the education system was the, uh, the old A-levels in those days, and uh, O-levels. Uh, let, let me just ask you one specific final question, if I could. People won't realise quite how radical was the idea of a GCSE, because before that, essentially, you had had to make a decision about whether somebody was going to do an O-level or a CSE, and one was always seen as pretty much inferior. So there was something quite radical about the GCSE itself. But, of course, having that exam at 16 belonged to an age when people could leave school at 16. If you were Education Secretary now, what would you be doing in terms of that? I took the predecessor of GCSE in 1950. It was called School Certificate. And you had to have an exam at 16 because only 7% of youngsters went on beyond 16. You left school and you went for a job. And you had to clutch this bit of paper saying whether you got a distinction or a credit or a pass in a number of subjects. It was, it was what you showed, showed employers. Uh, that is no longer the case. Uh, the, the school leaving age is now effectively 18. Uh, and so you don't need a test at exam 16 at all. I would hope that to see GCSEs fade out within five to ten years. So you'd have something which marks the end of general education at 14 and then children would start to specialise, wouldn't Yes, they? I think that in fact one should assess children's abilities at 14 to try to persuade them and direct them into the areas where they can use their parents best. Um, I think you now have selection 11 and 16. Uh, 11 is quite the wrong age to transfer children, in my view. Uh, I think by 13, 14, youngsters are capable of deciding where their interests lie, and they should be allowed to choose, choose a variety of different routes. What you've got to do is increase the number of routes. And going up academically, very narrowly, like EBAC up to 16, is quite the wrong route, in my, in my opinion. Quite the wrong route. You have to produce variety at 13, 14. And I know I said that was the last question um, several minutes ago. This is the last question. That notion of accountability using performance tables and using an inspectorate, which was done on behalf of parents to open up the world of education and give information to them. For lots of my members who are head teachers and deputies and assistant heads, it feels as if those things, the inspectorate, the performance tables, are driving too much of what happens in schools. What, what's your view of that? I don't think the inspectorate is. I think that the inspectorate is a very important part of an education system. And I remember Keith Joseph telling all his junior ministers to read the reports that aired on schools. He said that's the only way that you'll find out about it. But the school reports in those days that came from came to school inspectors were about 20 or 30 pages. They were very long. And now they're about two and a half pages. Um, and so I think the inspectorate is necessary. Um, elite tables, I think, have got a bit out of hand. 
Um, and it seems that the only thing that a school is judged upon is how many students go to university. It's quite the wrong judgment. Uh, you've got to think of the other destination data of children today. And I would make destination data for all schools a compulsory subject for the heads. And they must identify where their students have gone. It's not just universities, it's apprenticeships, it's to jobs, it's to further training, it's to specialist training. And one should think much more upon that than just exam results. Lord Baker, pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.